Welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. Delighted to welcome Ben Jacobs back to the show. Follow him at Jacobs Ben on Twitter. And um, Ben, um, we will come to Newcastle uh, in due course if we have time. But I, w- I followed a-, a thread that you posted about Chelsea Football Club. And of course, as we know, uh, the war in Ukraine has meant that uh, the glorious owner, R- uh, Roman Abramovich, is no longer welcome. In, in the UK, as most ugly orcs have now uh, had to be either expelled or banned from coming into the country and doing business here, of course, because of the ongoing war. Um, this is, of course, thrown Chelsea into complete disarray. And uh, the thread that you posted the other day and the continuing tweets that you're putting out, it's very interesting. And I think from a Newcastle fan's point of view, I thought it would be interesting to get you on and discuss it because um, our own takeover, which was, uh, shall we say, covered in controversy, um, eventually went through, but it was uh, it was hard work. Are Chelsea going to find uh, a similar, uh, you know, a similar length of time for a takeover? And, and could this be the end of Chelsea Football Club, I guess? Yeah, they're great questions. And as you say, Newcastle fans will be looking very closely, particularly at the process. I think the first thing is that you can't really compare the two takeovers, Steve, because of the circumstances. And yet, that said, Chelsea Football Club still have to go through some of the same so-called box ticks. And I say so-called because they weren't for Newcastle United. So the first thing I think Newcastle fans watching from afar will look at is obviously in the context of their own taker, the, the owners and directors test. And they'll say, well, hang on a minute. Is it true that Chelsea have been able to work with the Premier League in advance to effectively soft vet or clear or, in essence, complete the owners and directors test in advance to speed up the sale? And how, when with Newcastle United, they said there was a process and until they had all of the information available, they couldn't even start the owners and directors test. And that's a valid point. And I think that with Chelsea you may read that an owners and directors test has been done and effectively, as I understand it, that's true in a soft sense, but the Premier League will still have to wait until an actual deal is done with a fixed amount and set terms and a signed purchase agreement before they can actually formally undergo the owners and directors test. But Newcastle fans will definitely see an irony there because they'll say, well, it's being sped through for Chelsea and it was being slowed down for Newcastle United. And that's a very broad and superficial way of looking at it. But there is a valid point in there somewhere. But I think that coming to Chelsea specifically, it is a completely different takeover. So the context, as you've pointed out, is that Roman Abramovich becomes sanctioned due to the war in Ukraine Therefore, he cannot do any business in the UK. Once the government imposed those sanctions, football follows suit because there's a knock-on effect at Chelsea Football Club. And therefore, Abramovich decides, very loosely speaking, to sell. And most would argue that he's been forced to sell the football club. And at this point, it gets really interesting because who's got the control? Is it still Abramovich? Because he can reject a sale 
But if he rejects the sale due to the government restrictions and Chelsea's special license expiring on May the 31st, the football club will effectively go bust. So if you take it from Abramovich's position first, he's being told slash deciding to sell and he's making absolutely no money from the sale. And then if he doesn't sell, the football club will, in essence, go out of business and they must resolve the matter by really the end of May when their special license expires. But if they don't quite get it done by the end of May, the latest is probably June the 8th, because that's a combination of being over a week without a license to function and the Premier League meeting ahead of the new 2022-2023 season. And if Chelsea still don't have a license then, they can't compete domestically. And at the same time, they'll incur all kinds of costs that they can't pay. So Abramovich is almost being asked to sell for nothing, donate the proceeds to the victims of the war in Ukraine, which is great as long as there's some kind of clarity over how that's going to be done. And then the new ownership group are getting a football club at a fire sale price. The complication is that you then have the government who to some extent are in control because they're the ones that can push a sale through on the terms that they want because they are in control of Chelsea's license. And we're getting closer and closer and closer to the date when that expires. And the government are, as I understand it, highly unlikely to extend that license. Then you have the existing infrastructure at Chelsea Football Club, who most would argue are effectively conduits for Abramovich. And they've got a little bit of control over who the suitor will be. Why? Because they've sent out tender to buy Chelsea to a bank in New York called Rain Group. And in doing so, they've got a diverse and high profile variety of suitors. And the more interested parties you have, the more leverage as a football club you've got which is why in the last seven days or so, when Roman Abramovich asked for a little bit extra money in the context of billions, a lot of extra money to you and to me, 500 million, when he made that request, there's so many interested parties, three shortlisted suitors still in the race, that it's very difficult for them to say no to that request because they know that there's probably the other two that are quite prepared to swoop in. So Chelsea have still got a bit of control in that respect. And then you have the current preferred bidder, which is being led by an American called Todd Bowley, who is a minority owner at the LA Dodgers. And there's a private investment firm called Clear Lake Capital, who will be the majority owners of Chelsea. And they have also got some control because Chelsea know that if the preferred bidder cannot complete a sale due to time, they're in big, big trouble. And then in case you don't want any more twists, then turn off now because there's then a new bidder called Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who's the owner of Nice. And he made an unofficial rogue offer outside of the process a couple of days ago. And he's hoping he's got some control because he believes with not necessarily any substantial evidence at this point, but his feeling is, is that the sale might fall through with the preferred bidder, the Bowley and Clear Lake group, and then he'll be able to sweep in. And should he be able to sweep in, so much time will have then passed that Chelsea will almost be forced to sell to him. That's unlikely. I think that he's miles behind even the failed bidders and definitely the preferred bidder, the Bowley Clear Lake group. But there's lots of different components. I'm sure Newcastle fans are fully confused at this point, but it's certainly intriguing 
because in essence, you've got Abramovich forced to sell, making no money from the sale. You've got government controlling Chelsea's license. You've got a preferred bidder trying to navigate those two parties and also work out if they do or don't have to pay back the 1.6 billion in debt that technically they should owe to Roman Abramovich, but Abramovich has said he'll write off but legally, he can't write off at the moment because of the sanctions. So that's kind of complicated. And then again, as I said right at the beginning, bringing it back to Newcastle, the final party involved is the Premier League. And that's where Newcastle fans, like I started by saying, will be most intrigued because there definitely appears to be a scenario where, on the one hand, they've kind of passed the prospective new Chelsea owner before the actual purchase agreement has been signed. And on the other hand, only months ago, they said to Newcastle United, we can't do anything until we have all of the information. So they said they were playing Newcastle by the book, and it looks like they've given Chelsea a little bit more leeway and fluidity to the process. And obviously, Richard Masters is definitely going to face questions on that from Newcastle United and potentially other clubs going forward. Kevin McFish on Twitter asks a, a good question. He says, Ben, regarding the Chelsea sale, how does the proposed writing off of the apparent 1.6 billion loan from Abramovich to Chelsea affect their financial fair play situation? Uh, his understanding is that it can't just be gifted to them. It was essentially the building blocks that got them where they were. Yeah, it can't be gifted. The loan is a big problem at the moment. The easiest solution is that the UK government actually negotiate with Abramovich and they turn the debt to equity, effectively shares. And then although that weakens the value of the club in theory, it allows for the debt to be dealt with without any real complications. And the long-term effect for the football club isn't as preferential taking that route, but in the short term, Chelsea need a solution Otherwise, they're effectively going to go out of business. And make no mistake, that is a very real possibility if a sale doesn't happen. If the debt isn't resolved, then the new owner has to take it on at book value. So it's effectively like you've bought a house for four odd billion and there's a 1.6 billion mortgage. So you pay 1.6 billion less and then you assume that 1.6 billion in debt now, at that point, there's still a problem because if the new ownership group has the debt, they can't, under the sanctions, pay Abramovich, either in a lump sum or in any kind of instalments. So effectively, it's a debt in limbo and they may be asked as part of the sale to still transfer those funds into a kind of frozen account or they may be asked to allocate those funds in their financials, knowing that one day they'll have to make payments because Abramovich still hasn't made it clear whether he's asking for the loan back now or whether his logic is he's forced to ask for it back because legally he cannot write off the debt. And those are two very different things to a new ownership group because if he can't write the debt off now but still wants to write off the debt, then the new ownership group may well come in, do what they need to, and know that they'll never have to pay that money back as long as Abramovich keeps his word. But if Abramovich says, actually, I do want that money back, then the wholesale process becomes really complicated because under the sanctions, he cannot have that money back at the moment, which puts everybody in a very awkward position. As far as the benefit from the debt being written off, should it be, is concerned, there is none. 
because the way that the Premier League's profit and sustainability rules work and the way that financial fair play works is that even if the debt is written off and however it is written off, doing so will generate a false profit and the latest set of accounts, but then it will still be classified under the profit and sustainability rules, which is the Premier League's rules, and financial fair play, which is UEFA's rules, as a debt. So what you're really doing is saying that you've boosted by having 1.6 billion taken off the books, and then it's put straight back on the books as far as accounting purposes concerned, specifically for financial fair play and the Premier League's profit and sustainability. So what you could get, depending on which scenario manifests, is a false profit on the accounts, which is then immediately taken off. So there's no ability to benefit under any kind of financial fair play or profit and sustainability. Des on Twitter also says, uh, Ben, do you think it's the end of Chelsea as a club chasing trophies? And do you think any new owner can match Roman Abramovich's investment? No new owner will match Roman Abramovich's investment. That's not to say that the Bowley Group and some of the other suits involved don't have a lot of capital. And, you know, if you bring it back to Newcastle terms again, it's always that sort of irony, isn't it? That you get to a certain point where even if you're not Abramovich rich or PIF rich, it doesn't really matter. You've still got what you need to make moves in transfer windows as long as you're within the profit and sustainability and financial fair play rules. So you don't need billions and billions and billions to spend like Chelsea have spent under Abramovich. You actually, per transfer window, just need millions and millions and millions. And the prospective ownership groups, all of them bidding for Chelsea, have that kind of capital, even if they don't quite have the same wealth as Abramovich. But the reason why they won't spend the same as him is because that business model is not sustainable despite the volume of trophies that they've won. So the Bowley Clear Lake group, for example, are looking to be far more structured in how they spend, but also recruit players. So it's not necessarily about being as cutthroat as Abramovich. I think that because Abramovich had success, people assume that that strategy was just spend, spend, spend. And in the early days of Chelsea, it probably was. But now your success shouldn't, and I think Liverpool would certainly argue this, and Manchester City too, and Newcastle are probably going to head in this direction as well. It shouldn't just be about, we've got a transfer window, so we're going to spend, or we've got money, and therefore we will spend lots. It's also about how can we buy for longevity so we don't have to spend, and how can we bring through our system to allow ourselves pathways and development so we get value from players. Because then in the first scenario, young players are developed and they stay for a long time. And in the second scenario, you bring through players via your academy, via loans, via potentially feeder clubs if you're the City Football Group. And then if they arrive at the peak, which would be Manchester City in that example, then you again have got a relatively cheap talent that ticks the box of the first point I made, longevity at the football club. And if they don't make it, then you've developed them to a point where you can still sell them and make a big profit over them. So you don't need to spend, spend, spend because you get the depth and the quality internally through your football strategy. And that will be the Bowley Clear Lake approach as opposed to just here's a blank checkbook. So I don't think that you'll see mass spending yet 
the first transfer window of the new owner will be really interesting because there's going to be, due to the uncertainty and just desire of one or two Chelsea players to move on regardless of this situation, a little bit of an exodus. We know that Antonio Rudiger is going to Real Madrid. I think that you'll see Christiansen go to Barcelona. Looks like there's a five-year deal agreed there. Alonso is another doubt for sure. And therefore, Chelsea have got some uncertainty. Reese James and Mason Mount are priorities to keep at the football club. But three or four could easily leave Stamford Bridge and therefore they will have to replace them. So I think that the first move might actually be to focus on something that wins over the fan base and more importantly, Thomas Tuchel, to keep the depth and the level of quality currently at the football club. So Chelsea could go out and get a Declan Rice. And then, of course, everyone's going to say, wow, new owners, they've spent big, they've brought in a star name. Things are fine. There's been a transition between Abramovich and the new ownership group. And look, they're quite prepared to bring in star names. And that might happen. But I think if it does, it's almost because they're forced to do that. But strategically, over the next two or three or four transfer windows, much like I think PAF at Newcastle, you'll see a much slower, much more strategic approach than under Roman Abramovich, even if the financial funds are still there. So then can Chelsea kind of maintain where they're at? Well, absolutely, but football moves. So if Chelsea just stay where they're at, then they'll move backwards because of Newcastle United, because of hopefully clubs like Leicester, because of Manchester United under Eric Ten Hag. So that's the kind of challenge is that every time a football club succeeds, they get a period of success and stability. And I always compare it to F1 when one car succeeds and then the following season, the other cars actually use the second half of the season when they know that they're out of the running and the race to develop for the following season. And then they suddenly find themselves ahead. And if you look at Lewis Hamilton competing for a title last season, miles behind this season. If you look at Newcastle, they're planning for next season, whereas teams fighting for this season, like Liverpool, have to obviously focus on winning the quadruple. So some of their rivals can gain an advantage. And just generally, teams that haven't succeeded learn off the teams that have succeeded. So a club like Chelsea have to look behind their shoulder at Newcastle, at Manchester United, and they can't just stay where they are. Because if they do, then they'll fall two or three places, maybe not next season, but over the coming years. So you've constantly got to evolve. And therefore, a new owner can be quite beneficial for that because Abramovich wasn't interested in evolving. He had one style, one way. He wasn't hands-on. He wasn't transparent. He wasn't at Stamford Bridge. But why did fans love him? Because he had money and they won things. But that's not a sustainable strategy as other football clubs become more savvy. And that's why I think a sustainable new Chelsea owner with fresh ideas and fresh blood will actually be quite good for that football club as long as they can get the deal done on time. Yeah. Now, I'm hoping to get you on throughout the summer just to give us a, a, an unbiased update on and, and a realistic update on transfers, Ben, because uh, obviously you've always got your ear to the ground and uh, it would be nice to, to get you on to so, uh, separate the wheat from the chaff uh, when you're available. Um, so a couple of questions in from Newcastle fans now. Tom Dixon says, um, do you think Newcastle can break into the top six next season? And which players do you think will come to Newcastle? And Stephen Locke asks a similar question. How many realistic signings do you think we will make? And who are the players likely to sign? 
Yeah, I think that when you talk about Newcastle as a top six club, then based on the second half of the season, they're already a top six club. So if they have the momentum going into next season, there's absolutely no reason why they won't challenge for the top six. And that middle portion of the Premier League is becoming so tight that's challenged for the top six. You can be 10th or even 12th at Christmas now and still find yourself with a good run moving up towards that top six, which is more equivalent to the championship and the race for the playoffs. So effectively, if you're not in a relegation zone, you're challenging for the top half of the table and eight or so of the top half of the table qualifies for Europe now. So I think that it's not really going to be for me and I don't think this will just be next season. I think it will be over the course of the next decade and onwards. It's not going to be like a top six gap down to the best of the rest, gap down to relegation. I think that you're going to have three or four sides fighting relegation, maybe one or two others. And then I think you're going to have almost everybody else between maybe fourth, but certainly fifth through to 14th or 15th. So Newcastle are comfortably in that bracket. And if they continue in this vein of form where they're one of the best sides in the Premier League at the time of speaking form-wise, then of course they're going to be a top six side and maybe even better. And then who are they going to sign? Well, I think they don't need that many. And to the point I made in my last answer, it's about creating a spine. And remember, added to the spine and what makes the form so impressive in the back half of the year is that they've gone on this rise without Kieran Trippier, without the injured Callum Wilson, without Joe Linton for just one or two games as well. And Bruno obviously has stepped up and totally exploded into the first team. So the January signings have served not just a purpose, but given Newcastle real depth and quality. And as a consequence, I wouldn't be changing that much if I was Eddie Howe, because otherwise, to the point I made a moment ago, you lose the momentum. And what's the point in losing the momentum when you're the second or third best team in the Premier League form-wise since January under Eddie Howe? There's a few positions that they'll need to move in, I think. A goalkeeper still could be one of them, despite the fact that Dubravka is relatively popular. I think with a lot of Newcastle fans, I think even in the last January transfer window, there was some talk, wasn't there, of Henderson coming in. And it wouldn't surprise me if Howe is looking for a goalkeeper, I think a wide player. I know that Nunes has been linked as well. And I still believe that a forward, an out-and-out striker, will be a priority for Eddie Howe. And the reason I say that is just because Chris Wood feels short-termist or a squad player. And Callum Wilson, as liked as he is, isn't exactly young now. I'm not saying that he can't serve a purpose at Newcastle for the next two or three years, but I think that Howe will want another player up there and, you know, the beauty is that there's a number of versatile players that can kind of float around different positions out wide in false number nines at the football club at the moment. But I just think that if Newcastle can get their hands on a 15 plus a season goal scorer, then that will also help move them to the next level. You're going to see a range of players that they're chasing. Jeremy Doku would be a good one. And I know that a lot of people compare him to Adama Traore, certainly one to keep an eye on if they're going to move towards a defender, then it wouldn't surprise me if I'm Frankfurt's defender, Evan and Dicker is somebody that 
will be in the mix. Darwin Nunes, I've already mentioned as well. There's kind of substance to that particular link, but my understanding is that Nunes isn't overly keen on a move to St. James's Park, but Newcastle continue to chase that. Sven Botman, if we're going back uh, to talk about defenders and the January transfer window, we know he wanted to move to Newcastle United. Let's see whether anything changes over the um, summer period um, or whether Newcastle feel that they're uh, strong enough there already. But, you know, coming back to what I said before, you've got Dan Byrne, you've got Trippier, you've got Bruno, you've got Chris Wood. All, all of those are a real spine already, which means that I don't see Newcastle needing or having a desire to sign more than two or three. And then the final name to mention within that bracket of players is obviously Matt Target. And there'll be a priority there for Newcastle to complete a permanent signing from Aston Villa. And if they get him, then they'll have made a very, very strong start. So have you picked up just on that on that point, have you picked up anything on you know some of the stuff that's doing the rounds on social media that Target might not be something that uh, Eddie Howe is looking at? I mean, I find that surprising because I think he's been outstanding since he came in January. Yeah, I think he's been outstanding as well. And, you know, when you bring in a new player, they help you stay up. They add consistency. There's no reason whatsoever why Howe wouldn't want that player at a football club. He may have had intimation, which is always the challenge when you have this kind of deal, that Aston Villa and Steven Gerrard want him back. And if so, it may not be a feasible player to re-sign. But it would seem crazy to replace Target with a similar player when he's only been at the club six months. And as you say, he's been outstanding. So my understanding remains that Howe would like to keep Target at the football club. I have less information to be perfectly upfront about what the relationship is between Villa and Newcastle on this particular transfer. But I do think that it should be a priority for Newcastle United Football Club to keep Target. So then you're sort of in a scenario where if you look at where the holes are, you need a keeper. Jan Black and rumours of that ilk are totally spurious. There's no possibility whatsoever of getting someone like that. Dean Henderson is obviously a realistic target if Newcastle United choose to move. And then Trippier will obviously come back from injury and target, I think, should be there to play on the other side. And then maybe a centre-back is needed. I think another name that has been linked is Gleason Bremer, who is the Torino centre-back. He would be uh, another Brazilian at the football club. So Newcastle would uh, fast be turning South American. But he's really good in the sense that there's strong positional sense there. There's good pace. And I think he's a player that would really relish the kind of Premier League culture, style, physicality, and obviously get on really well with Joe Linton and Bruno as well. And then Danburn, I would imagine, picks himself at the back. Uh, maybe a central midfielder. But, you know, you've got Bruno, you've got Joe Linton. Um, but it just depends, I suppose, whether Howe wants to kind of play with three and a lot in that respect will depend on who he brings in ahead of him as well. And then, you know, wide people are needed as well. So Nunes has been um, spoken about. I think Diaby has been spoken about as well. Um, and, you know, where does Alan St. Maximum fit into that potentially front three as well? So there's lots of kind of questions there. Um, maybe the last name to briefly mention is Rickarlison as well, who um, I don't think would be too popular amongst Newcastle fans, but will be available in the market, especially if Everton go down 
and he's one to watch as well. But this is the problem with a um, summer transfer window, that even when we're talking about it now, that's 10 or 12 odd names that have been mentioned. And with each name isolated, fans get really excited. But it's not feasible to blend in all of those names with the existing infrastructure and new signings and form players that aren't new signings. So taking a step back, if you talk about the January signings and who's played well, if you talk about Trippier coming back, Wilson coming back, St. Maximin being a part of the football club and so on, then there's only really room for two or three. And if you were going two or three, I would probably go goalkeeper, wide player, winger or sort of forward come, um, you know, versatile wide man and then out and out striker. And then if, if you're giving me a fourth centre back, and I think those are the only real areas I would look to strengthen. So I think you'll see sensible signings from Newcastle. But a lot of the names that I've mentioned are ones that are on their shortlist but it's not really a short list. It's a long list because that's how January tra summer transfer windows work. You, you, you have to chase four or five different names in different areas to get the ones you want. But if you said to me, Newcastle will make more than four signings, um, uh, my response at this stage from what I know would be, I'd be very, very surprised. Well, I'm certainly going to be keeping an eye on the names that we're linked with. I've uh, said I'm going to do it from the end of the season, uh, which um, then, you know, we start getting into the, the slightly, and I say slightly, more credible uh, targets. Uh, at the minute, we're getting linked with everybody and anybody. Has it surprised you? Um, you know, obviously, the, the resurgence in some uh, some of the players. I'm thinking of Almiron, for instance, um, or Sean Longstaff. And the fact that Eddie Howe has come out very supportive of Almiron and Sean Longstaff in particular. Um, and, and, you know, from, from, you know, from our perspective, it means that there's two, two players there who I think probably in January fans felt that these, these players were going to be surplus to requirements and would be on their way. Now we seem to have a future at Newcastle. So does that surprise you? Not especially because these are players, if you talk to people behind the scenes, that have showed this type of form in training. And it's about unlocking that in a match environment. And therefore, you're not necessarily dealing with a change in technique or style or when a footballer, I'm talking generally now, is younger development. You're actually just kind of seeing a benefit from a new manager with a new ethos, with new training methods and ideas with a new type of man management and you've got the whole buzz of the takeover and the home crowd and the psychology of how a footballer responds to that will differ from individual to individual but there's definitely a logical argument to be made that a footballer not playing that much under Steve Bruce not enjoying the day-to-day -day training feeling like there's a gloominess, a grey cloud hanging over the whole football club isn't going to like coming to work day on day. And I can only compare that to any other job. I think we've all been in that position where if you don't like your boss, if you don't like your work office, and perhaps we put footballers in a different bracket and just assume that they absolutely love playing football. So whether a manager changes, whether they win or lose, they still should have that ability individually to bring their own form to the table. But that's just not the reality of life. It's not how psychology works. So I think that 
it's no coincidence that a new ownership group comes in that are very connected to the fan base. The fan base becomes woken up. St. James's Park becomes a fortress. The team starts winning. There's a buzz around the football club and suddenly players that didn't have the confidence to take games by the scruff of the neck, you know, keep hold of the ball, try new things, take shots from distance, are doing that. And, you know, an example of that is Almiron with his goal the other week. Would he have done that under a Bruce side where you're 1-0 down in a game where the fans are moaning and groaning, where St. James's Park doesn't have as many people in, it's not as noisy, where the manager has had a different approach to him and hasn't necessarily had that one-on-one relationship. You know, Howe is very personable with his players, so they want to play for him. Uh, Bruce was a little bit more old school and um, distant. So if there's a bit part player, he wouldn't necessarily have had him in his office, have been putting his arm around him in training, have been encouraging him. And um, some of that's natural because when you're struggling, you know, your focus has to be on um, winning a game, your um, core group of players, your starting 11, your tactics for that match. You haven't got as much time when you're winning and things are just ticking over and there's momentum. You've actually got a bit more time. Most football managers say to think about your broader squad. And once you become safe, you know, you can play with a bit more freedom. And that's a factor as well. So there's all kinds of things on the psychological side, I think, that is leading to this improvement in form. And I think, as I said before, both players, if you talk to Newcastle players or those connected to the club behind the scenes, would have seen this all season. So now what's changed? And the only answer I can come to is the fan base are re-energised, the football club is positive, there's momentum, they're winning, there's a new manager who's got a different approach to Bruce and there's a new ownership group. And each of those, I think, have unlocked that potential or consistency or re-energised these players in a way that now they are um, playing for the football club um, to their maximum potential. And probably the reason I think that, even if others um, disagree and put it down to more technical things, uh, is just because exactly the same thing seemingly happened to Joe Linton a little bit earlier in the season where he was being derided. There was clearly no confidence there. He didn't know how he fit into the system. He was adapting uh, to the squad. Others around him were letting him down. And again, suddenly Newcastle United um, start turning things around and he becomes a superstar, superhuman player. And that for me, again, is not down to a change in talent or technique or something clicking in his mind. It's just confidence. And um, footballers, when they get confidence, can unlock their potential. And that's obviously why at the front end of the pitch, strikers go through scoring streaks. Uh, Look at Vardy for Leicester, where he scored in all those consecutive goals and so on. So I think that's what it's down to. Uh, There's lots of different theories, but uh, what I would say is it's great to see both of those players kind of reinventing themselves at Newcastle United Football Club. Now, I did notice you mentioned, Lester, that um, there was a certain photograph you put up on Twitter, Ben, there <laughs> at St. James's Park when Newcastle managed to put uh, put one over your other teammate. Uh, I, I did laugh. It was tongue-in-cheek, I realised, but you had your tune shirt on. Um, <laughs> it just shows when you support more than one team, it can come in handy. <laughs> I won, didn't I, either way, because if Leicester had won, then I would have been able to celebrate and with Newcastle winning. There's evidence I was in a Newcastle United shirt. So I committed myself to the winning team. But yeah, it was just a little bit of fun. We were down there actually enjoying the North Barracks hospitality, which is great for Newcastle fans who 
haven't been involved in that before, if you do get the opportunity to go down there, it's a nice experience. What I like about it is it's really informal and you're on a sort of big table. So you have the chance to meet other people and then you go into the ground to watch the game and you get some nice seats and you hear from sort of ex-pro beforehand and afterhand and it's really good value and it's another example I think of what the club have done really well in trying to give an offering to fans that want something a bit different that they wouldn't normally see and yeah we were wandering around and we went into the club store and I thought why not it's not the first time I've ever worn a Newcastle shirt as I kept making clear during the takeover when seven-year-old me was wearing that more sort of iconic Newcastle brown ale top and as a kid I used to love Newcastle I won't go into the story because I've told it before but when you came down to Filbert Street and got that famous famous win and there was the pitch invasion and you felt like that was going to keep you up I, th I think you would have stayed up anyway because of how other results went but um, I saw that invasion at the old Filbert Street and I was like I love this this is cool as a young kid and always had a soft spot for Newcastle and when Leicester then got promoted to the Premier League. The first home game was against Newcastle. I think we lost by three goals to one, but it was sort of the days where you had um, the, I think, Beardsleys and um, other sort of uh, very iconic Premier League sort of legendary style players. So, um, you know, at that point, I really uh, did have a soft spot for Newcastle, but this was just a little gag, you know, uh, purchased the shirt, always like to collect football shirts. It's actually something I don't think I've told Newcastle fans, but when I go away to any uh, away game, I buy a football shirt. Uh, one, because I believe when people look after you at football clubs and uh, as a journalist, I'm fortunate that um, I do get a few invites here and there, probably much like yourself. I always like to give something back. And um, what better way to give back at a very basic level, uh, along with dropping donations into things like food bank bins and things. Um, uh, what else can you do? Uh, buy yourself something uh, that goes back towards the club business. And, you know, uh, a shirt uh, sale uh, is a small way of doing that. And I, I collect them, you know, and then it's a reminder rather than just having a program or a match ticket, you can pin them up in places, you can leave them in the drawer uh, or you can stick them on and pretend to be a Newcastle fan and then sneak out and celebrate with the winning side and end up a glory hunter. And then when next season you end up winning the Premier League, I'll stick it on and I'll change my story. And I'll say, I was always a Newcastle fan, the photo of there in the Newcastle shirt. Uh, and I'll be with you lifting the Premier League trophy. So uh, I've got the best of both worlds, but it, it was a great uh, trip up. And um, what I was going to say uh, is just it was nice to see one or two Newcastle fans that perhaps I'd only engaged with on Twitter. Uh, but it was also really great to wander around the city. So um, we went to um, a really nice area just outside of um, the centre of Newcastle called Jesmond Dean, uh, which has a little waterfall and a country house. Uh, we went up to the castle. I uh, went to a good bar called The Botanist, uh, which had some live music and a, a really sort of stunning looking ceiling, um, like an indoor kind of botanic garden. Um, and uh, just really enjoyed the day out. It's a great city. They're, they're great people, yourself included. Uh, really uh, friendly fan base. And, you know, whatever disagreements have been had on uh, Twitter through the Takeover Saga, um, I think it's clear when you meet people in person um, that, um, you know, there's a, a real warmth and a willingness from everyone connected uh, within Newcastle, not just the football club, uh, to welcome someone to their city and make sure that they have the best possible time and the best possible uh, evening. And um, I think the last thing I want to say on that is just, um, 
what makes Newcastle unique, and it's just a small example of this, is I don't think there's any other Premier League club, um, not unless they've won a final or something. Um, you know, this is a 2-1 win over Leicester, uh, a big win, but effectively the football club were pretty close to safe at that point. So it's hardly their biggest win of the season. I don't think there's any other football club that seven, eight hours after kickoff, uh, after full time, I should say, um, are still out in town, um, even when they've changed their clothes, even when they're doing whatever they're doing, nothing to do with football. Um, they're still celebrating. They're still chanting. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a fancy bar, on the street, in the chippy, on the train. Uh, almost every single person uh, was walking around Newcastle chanting Bruno, 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 Bruno. And, and that, that celebration ran on hours and hours and hours and hours, vocally, visually. Like I say, even if they were no longer wearing their Newcastle shirts, it ran on for hours and hours and hours and hours afterwards to the same degree of jubilation, to the same degree of celebration, um, to the same degree of warmth. And um, I think that just tells you everything you need to know about the football club and how important it is to the city. Because uh, I don't think you go to Manchester uh, or even Leicester uh, and we beat, let's say, Southampton 2-1 to move to 10th in the table um, an hour or so after kickoff. Um, even though people go to bars afterwards, once they get on with their lives and they're not in a football environment, um, that celebration doesn't continue. But as I say, we were in a place like the Botanist Bar, which is pretty fancy. Everyone's dressed up. It's not a place really for football supporters and fans. It's quite civilised. There's live music. And people were still there singing it and celebrating. Um, and as I say, that's a very strong reflection of um, how passionate the fan base are. Uh, but the new ownership group should not discount that point uh, because it also shows them uh, that every single Newcastle game whether it's uh, pivotal or not, uh, makes or breaks a Newcastle fan's uh, weekend um, and potentially life. And I don't think there's many football clubs left, certainly not in the UK like that, uh, because the, as fan bases become more um, diverse and global, um, they and as football prices become more expensive, then uh, football clubs can become disconnected with that day-to-day -day fan. Uh, but, you know... It's exactly the opposite at Newcastle. And, um, you know, I'm not saying it's absolutely the only example, but it certainly struck me um, of how unique and special that was. And um, even though I've gone on a bit of a tangent, um, I very much enjoyed uh, my day in Newcastle. Fantastic. Quick prediction for the uh, the oil derby, Newcastle United away to Man City uh, this weekend. Give us a quick prediction, mate. I think Manchester City win, unfortunately, just because of what's at stake and, you know, having been knocked out in such dramatic circumstances in the Champions League, there'll be a backlash because they now know that, you know, they have to win that Premier League or the entire season is lost. You know, they're, they're not in the FA Cup final. They didn't win the League Cup. So suddenly the Premier League has even more pertinence than ever. Uh, Newcastle could play without freedom, uh, but I, I just think, the worst scenario for Newcastle was exactly what happened in the Champions League and Manchester City will come back with fire in their belly. Uh, Newcastle were not at their best against Liverpool, uh, even though the scoreline suggests it was only a narrow defeat. Um, but yeah, I see Manchester City winning 3-1, unfortunately. Um, but Newcastle are safe, at least. Um, only just, though. And that's the interesting thing as well, is that... Um, Everyone now at the bottom of the table, I suppose, as you expect at this stage of the season, has had a real resurgence, you know. Everton have got big points um, and a few very winnable home games coming up. 
Um, Leeds have gone on a run, um, a little bit of a run anyway, under Jesse Marsh. Burnley have found wins out of nowhere. So suddenly um, safety is probably going to be uh, 37, 38, 39 points when uh, only a few weeks ago you'd have said it would be 33, 34 uh, so it, it is a good thing that Newcastle beat Leicester and snuck over 40 points early because I tell you what, uh, if they were on 37, 38, 39 at this point, um, you'd be saying they're not safe. I mean, Brentford, I think, have got Southampton, right, um, coming up. Both those teams are on 40 points. If one of those teams loses that game, um, I think Southampton have then got Liverpool. Let's say they lose that game. There's a real opportunity then uh, if um, the sides below them get one more win that you hit the last game of the season and even a team like Southampton on 40 points uh, are not mathematically safe. So um, luckily Newcastle aren't going to Manchester City as we all thought, uh, going, yikes, we need something from this game, which as I say is a good thing because unfortunately I don't think they will get something from the game. It is squeaky bum time. Ben, as always, I know you're on the road uh, again, so I will let you go and do the adverts on the show. But looking forward to getting you back on throughout the summer to uh, give us your perspective on Castle United's transfer window. But uh, for now, Ben Jacobs, thanks very much. Cheers, Steve. Take care. Good luck against Man City. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. Great to have Ben on. Uh, top, top man. And uh, thank you once again to our sponsors, Spider Miner, worldwide coverage from the guys. Uh, the only cryptocurrency miner that can mine five different cryptocurrencies at the same time whilst using virtually no energy. And it's VPN protected by yours now at www.miner.spidervpn.org. Thanks also to Scott and the boys down at skipsandbins.com. Telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website www.skipsandbins.com. Easy contract, free and pays you go waste collection. Thanks to LNG Family Funeral Directors, 01913897245. And to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD, Hemp and Cannabinoid Specialists, www.gohd.com. Thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls End, Newcastle, and the guys who run our website, nufcmatters.com. And thanks to Kleekai. Meet the new game over screen. Drop into a Kleerun device near you. Uh, available on Apple Store, Google Play, and Kleerun.game. Thank you also to Media Arts for all the help with the video side of things. If you want to subscribe, please do. 150 people have subscribed this week. Uh, hit the Newcastle Legends logo in the bottom right-hand corner and you can subscribe for free. Hit the thumb up to like the video, which is very important for us. Uh, costs you nothing. And click share to share your social media. Drop into the comments box to speak to like-minded Newcastle fans. We are also available as a podcast, although it might be slightly delayed this week as Neil is on holiday. Uh, but we are available on iTunes, Spotify and the other podcast providers. If you want to become a member, you can click join and join as a member on YouTube, uh, which is a bit cheaper. Uh, it has to be said, and that just helps support the channel, which we uh, give you free content, of course. Uh, you can also become a cult member uh, by putting your smartphone over the QR code. Uh, it takes you straight to the website. Or go to nufcmatters.com and look for membership. Uh, what do you get for your £25 one-off fee? Well, you get a cup, a pen, a scarf, membership card, and you get entry into our monthly draw, which uh, in the past we've given away match tickets and a PlayStation 5. So always well worth uh, entering 
uh, and becoming a member. We've also uh, got car stickers, which we give away to anybody who subscribes to the show. You simply have to apply for your car sticker by emailing john at nufcmatters.com. Don't forget, we support the food bank on here, nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk. The match day bucket is operational 365 days of the year. You can make a virtual donation today. We do have our summer party on the horizon, Friday the 24th of June, doors at 7 o'clock. Entry only, tickets £12, VIP £15, which includes a meet and greet and a photo with Andy. It's at Shearer's Bar. 24th of June, tickets from nufcmatters.com. And you've still got time to enter the Alan Shearer raffle. It's to win a signed ball from the 260 dinner. Uh, these were limited at 260. 99 tickets at 299 a ticket. Tickets from nufcmatters.com. Uh, get your uh, entry in today and it's a 99 to 1 chance of winning. Uh, well worth having a punt. Uh, and those balls are lovely. There you go. Uh, that's a, a better picture of the ball there. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, there'll be a quick review show and a pre-match show for the Man City game with myself and Holly Blades. And then on Monday night, the fans forum will be back when you get your chance to pick the bones out of the game at the uh, Etihad Stadium. So thanks for joining us. As always, always a pleasure. And uh, keep tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the channel today if you haven't already.